Now we come to the study of God's Word, and so Romans chapter 12, a study we have been in for some time now. We still have a few weeks to go in our study of this great chapter. And I want to begin our time this morning by asking all of us a question. A question because it relates to the subject matter that we have been studying over the past several weeks. And the question is this. In what mindset did you wake up this morning? In what mindset did you wake up with this morning? In other words, as a Christian, as someone who knows Jesus Christ by faith, someone who professes to believe upon Jesus Christ, as you woke up to face this new day, as your brain began to cognitively function as your eyes opened and you began to face the morning, the coming day. What was your mindset? What was your mindset? Did you wake up today with the mindset of, here we go again. It's another day. I'm just resigning myself to the reality that life as I have it continues to go on. The circumstances that I'm in surely aren't what I want to be happening in life, but here we go again. Here we go again. I know I need to get up, but I don't want to. I don't want to face today. I'd rather just stay where I am. Maybe I can just close my eyes again and I'll wake up in a whole new circumstance. It'll all be different. Or did you wake up today with the mindset that you are going to proactively present yourself as a living sacrifice to God? Whatever your circumstance is, whatever life is bringing, whatever your desires, you will embrace all of it out of a humble gratitude because of the mercy of God in which you receive through salvation. I ask all of us that because that mindset in which we approach any moment of any day will have a massive effect upon our Christian behavior. It will have a massive impact upon how we live. And therefore, it will have an impact as well on our testimony to others. Our testimony concerning the power of salvation. What it can do to a person. How it can change someone from their old self to a new person in Christ. And I trust you remember last Lord's Day when we were together. When we were face to face with the words of the Holy Spirit. The words that we have been given through the Apostle Paul in verse 14 concerning how we are to react to persecution. We know as Christians that it is inevitable that we will be persecuted. 
that trouble will come. In this world, we will be persecuted. That's what Jesus said. In this world, you will have tribulation. In other words, it comes as part of the package. It's part of uh, uh, what is in the, the whole terminology and reality of true Christianity. It is there. It is baked in the, the recipe simply because we're Christian. And the world hates Jesus Christ. The world has hated our Savior since the day he arrived. When he was here, they hated him, and so too they will hate, and they do hate those who identify with Christ. And so we learned in verse 14 that instead of responding with retaliation, which is a norm for our natural self, instead of retaliating in all the forms of retaliation, instead of lashing back, instead of even asking God that he might remove the perpetrator who is against us, instead of that, we are to speak good of them to God. That's what bless means. Eulogize them to God. Speak well of them. We found out that what Paul was saying there is that we are to pray. Pray that God would bless them with the highest of blessings. That's hard. That's hard for us. That's hard for us even as Christians, especially as Christians, because in fact we are persecuted. If we were like the world, we would not be persecuted. But because we are Christians, we are persecuted in various forms and in various ways. And so it's hard. We pray oftentimes, God, just take them out. In fact, God, get me out of this problem. And if taking them out is the means to do that, then by all means, let the fire go. We're just like the apostle or the disciples who said, you want us, Lord, to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people who don't want to have anything to do with you? No. We're to pray for them, that pray that God would bless them with the highest of blessings, and we know the highest of blessings of all time is to have them be saved by grace through faith. And so we pray. When we are persecuted, we bless and we curse not, Paul says here in verse 14. And the only way that we're able to do that is when we approach our day, when we we wake up in the morning and when we go throughout the day, we approach our day with the mindset of knowing and embracing the fact that we are offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul has told us over and over and over again. We've been reminded of this from verse 1. We are to offer ourselves in light of the overwhelming mercy that we have received by means of salvation. And so it is with that in our mind that we must come now to this next exhortation. Before we get there, let's ask God to bless our time together. Father, this is your time. This is your word. Your spirit illumines our heart and our mind to understand what it says. And so help us do what we are even exhorted to this morning in Sunday school, to meditate, to think on these things, to know what it is that you're saying, and then begin to think of the implications of that in our very life. That we know we are doing what you ask. We can fulfill 
the very things that you have commanded of us by the power of the Spirit as we submit ourselves to you. So impress these things upon us, allow us to do them, that our lives would be a reflection of your glory and grace and the gospel that has changed us, that you might receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here we are. The Apostle Paul in verse 15 says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Seems simple enough. And once again, we are face to face and exhorted about our reaction to other people. And you notice, just out of the gate, by the way, just that right off the top, the Apostle Paul doesn't clearly differentiate as to whether these are believers or unbelievers. There's no clear differentiation in, 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 a, in the directness of the verse, although we know that he's speaking to believers here because there's believers are the only ones that can do this. Believers are the only ones who are under the mercy of God, as he has spoken about in verses 1 and 2. Believers are the only ones who can carry out the actions that he is exhorting here. But he doesn't differentiate. He just says rejoice with those who rejoice. And really, in one sense, it doesn't matter if it's believers or unbelievers. In fact, it really doesn't even concern the circumstance in which we are to rejoice or weep. The response is to be genuine either way. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I find that very interesting. As we look at this very verse, just these few words here, I find this very interesting as we think about the Word of God. I want us to think about this for a moment, and I want us to to just walk with me, if you will, as we think through this. You say, what do you mean when you say this is interesting as you think about the Word of God? I mean that, yes, this is the word of the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul giving us what he has written. But we also know that no scripture is the invention of man. We know that, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter says this, Know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture, when he uses that word prophecy, he means not just future things, he means anything that God has said. No prophecy, what God means by what he says, not simply future things, but all the things. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That word can be very confusing. He means one's own uh, uh, production, really, produced by that person. It's not the matter of one's own production. Why? Verse 22 of that very passage. Because no prophecy, no scripture, was ever made by an act of human will. So what you have in your lap was not the product of man. So when someone comes along to you and says, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's just a bunch of old sayings of ancient times written by men, you can say, no, no, not true. Not true, not so, because no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will. They didn't dream it up, but rather... They were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit 
The Holy Spirit filled the sail of their very soul. They spoke from God. God used their words. God used their abilities. God used their talents. God used them and and who they were. But the very things that we have are the words of God. So we can have confidence. We have confidence in what we read. We have confidence in what we hear. This is the word of God. This is not Paul's thoughts on a matter. This is not Paul's wisdom as he figured out life, and since he's a a wise man, we can listen to Paul. No, this is God using Paul as his tool. These are God's words. And so we know that every word and every detail and the exact order of the words that we have are from God. Every word, every detail, all the punctuation, all the grammar, And the exact word order is from God. And that interests me, particularly in a verse like this. Because it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why didn't God, through the Apostle Paul, say, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Why the order? Why is it written like this? Why did God put the words in this order? I've been thinking about this, meditating on it this past week. That's what I do. I study the Bible. It gets in my mind, and that's what consumes my thoughts as I'm driving the car, as my wife is talking to me, and she says, you're really not listening to me, are you? And I say, well, no, I'm actually off in some other land. And then I have to shut that off and start listening because there are important details, obviously, that she's telling me. I've been meditating on this, and I was reading one of my dear dead friends, theologian from times past, as he dealt with this passage. And he offered a suggestion I believe brings some clarity to that very question. Why did God put these words in this order? And one answer was this. What is harder to do? What is harder to do between these two? It's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. Some of you are even shaking your heads as I said that. You're thinking about it yourselves and you're going, oh yeah, that makes sense. When we think about it, When we ponder situations, which each one of these might occur, the opportunity to rejoice or the opportunity to weep, when we think about it, rejoicing with those who rejoice or who are rejoicing is harder to do. You say, why? Why is that the case? Because our fallenness is bent in the other direction. Because our sinful flesh goes the other way. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's get a picture first from looking at weeping with those who weep. And I think when I, we draw this picture, we'll understand the idea. Now, when he says weeping, he's not meaning just, oh, you know, have some sad thoughts about it. No, this is, this is weeping. Like Jesus saw the hearts of the people who were weeping over the death of Lazarus, and he was moved in his very being. It's it's when someone you know is hurting, you hurt with them. 
It's that kind of thing. It's a visceral reaction. Now remember, Paul is talking about the the church. He's talking about the family. He's talking about all of us together as a family. Weeping, to weep with those who weep. It's somewhat of a natural response with with each one of us. It's almost natural. It, it, it really, I mean, when you think about it, it takes a really hard person, a really hardened heart, a, a, a stone-cold heart not to send some kind of sympathy for another person who is hurting in some kind of way. We all have been made in the image of God. There's something in that very reality that God made us that lends itself to be sympathetic in our response when someone's hurting. The world even knows this. The world even uses this. They use it. I even mentioned this when we were talking about contributing to the needs of the saints in verse or verse 13, we talked about in the contribution and how charitable organizations use these kinds of things in order to try to conjure up this very attitude in us. The world knows this in their advertising for donations. They put sad-looking pictures in front of us so that we'll have stir be stirred up in that emotion. We weep with those who are weeping. We open our wallets. We share it out. Because it's sad, it's, it's part of us. There's an innate part of us that just weeps with those who weep. Believers and unbelievers. We see the pain. We sense a kind of reality. The person who we're looking at has been humbled. They're in some difficult situation. So what do we do? We sympathize. We sense what they're going through, and we have this sense of sadness within us. And so it's simpler. It's simpler for us to weep with those who are down than it is for us to rejoice with those who are up. Why? Why is that? Because the number one problem with all of us, each and every one of us, is pride. Pride. We could spell pride another way with a four-letter word, S-E-L-F, self. Self, we love ourselves. We love ourselves. Self and pride are Siamese twins. Self is always looking at self. That's what it does. And looking at self is just a manifestation of pride. Self is always desiring to be seen as the significant one. It's always desiring to be elevated, always desiring to be the one who's the important person, always being the one who isn't below, but the one who is on top. That's what self does. It strives for all of that. This is what happened in the garden. It's been the problem ever since then. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, this was their issue. They had an issue that was being manifest in their heart about self. They were self-centered. We're going to be like God. We're going to be like God. That's pride. Arrogance, the manifestation of envy in all of its forms. Listen, beloved, that's our fleshly tendency, isn't it? Self, 
We don't even have to think about it. It's just there. Self is there. Self is running. Self is behind the scenes. It's always pushing itself forward. If we don't do something about it, it will be the number one thing. So when another person is rejoicing, when another person in the family is rejoicing when they're at the high, when they're being praised, when they're being rewarded, when they're being accoladed, when they're being seen as somebody who does something, and we've done it, but they're being rewarded for it, our tendency, our fleshly natural impulse is not to rejoice with them. Not to rejoice, not inside. Certainly not inside. Our tendency is to be jealous. Why can't I have? Why can't I be? Why can't, why, how come? All those things start to come to mind. And then you know what happens? We go to our friends and our neighbors and we say, yeah, I'm not so sure they really deserve that. I'm not so sure they deserve that. You see, the person who's in the low position, the person who is, as the world would say, the person who is down on their luck, that's how the world describes, oh, here's a person who's down on his luck. The person who's low, the person who is in some kind of difficulty is easy for us to weep with them. We weep with them. You know why? Sometimes it's sinful, sinful weeping because we're glad we're not them. And so we act like we're really compassionate toward them. Oh, I'm so sad of your condition. But we're really not sad at all. We're just glad we're not them. Why? Because they're no longer in competition with me. They're no longer a rival. No longer somebody who could eclipse me. No longer somebody who could get in my way, get in my in front of my accolades. From my higher position, it's easy for me to look down at them with and where they are, they're not where I'm at. It's easy to look down. But like I said, I'm not really weeping with them. I'm just glad they're not where I'm at. I'm just glad I'm not them. And when I'm not in their position, the natural and even sinful tendency, I can conjure up some weeping for them. But turn the tables. Turn the tables the other way. Turn the tables to the place where you are low, when you're the one in the low position, when you're the one, as the world might say, is down on your luck, when something in your life isn't giving you the accolades that you assume you should have or have even worked for. When I'm in the low position and I'm seeing the person who I don't think deserves it in the place of being applauded, in the place of being promoted, in the place of being in the glowing position. When no one is seeing my significance, when others are praising the very things I do, it's so much harder for me to rejoice with the one who is rejoicing. Some of you parents here are saying, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Okay, 
You've been harping on your children for years. You've been telling your teenagers the truth, speaking truth into their ears, claiming and clamoring for them to speak truth. And someone outside your family comes along who doesn't really even know your kids and speaks truth to them. And they come home to you and go, Mom and Dad, guess what happened? I learned this today. And you sit there and go, excuse me? I've been telling you that for years. You see how subtle it is? Instead of rejoicing, I go, why didn't I get the praise for that? How come I didn't get the pat on the back? I mean, after all, I've been feeding you and I changed your diapers when you were a kid. I mean, I did all those things. How come you're not praising me? That's how subtle it is. But I think we understand that when we are to rejoice and when we are to weep, we're talking about legitimate joy and legitimate sadness. We're not talking about just this fake kind of happiness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, quote, if a woman comes along and is happy because she stole money, we don't rejoice with that. We don't rejoice that she stole money. Or if someone is weeping because their selfish ambition has been thwarted, they're sad because their selfishness got exposed, and now they're sad about that. We don't, we don't weep with that. We rebuke that. We speak truth to that. We speak truth in love to that. We don't rejoice with that. We don't weep with those kinds of things. No, this is weeping and rejoicing in legitimate things. Legitimate things, but it isn't just the idea of don't be jealous. Sometimes when we think about that, that's what we get. We, we think in our minds. We think, well, this is just, okay, I'm not to be jealous of other people. We relegate it to the place of almost a contentment issue. I, I'm just not supposed to be jealous. No. That's not what he's talking about. The world tries to show that. The world tries to show that it's not jealous at times. They do it all the times. In fact, we've seen it. Ad infinitum recently in the political races, haven't we? <laughs> the one politician will say one day, I love that person, and the next moment they're trashing that person. Outwardly trying to be rejoicing with others. Oh, I think he's such a great person. I think she's such a great person. And then they turn right around the very next day, and the one they were endorsing now is the one they're tearing apart. The world can't even... Get it right. The best the world can do is try not to act with envy. And yet here, Paul is exhorting us not to even feel it. We're not simply to not act with envy. We're not even to feel it. So this is more than just simply putting on a smile. Oh, I'm so glad for you, but we really don't mean it. No, this, you know, when we do that, there's jealousy stirring on the inside. That's not what he's talking about. The world can do that. The best the world can do is just have surface fakery. That's what they do. It's just fake. It's hypocrisy. You can see it. No, we're commanded to actually and truly rejoice and weep. You say, well, how is that possible? How in the world is that possible? 
Well, it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way it's possible. No unbeliever can do this. No unbeliever can even think about doing this. The best an unbeliever can do is try to surface, hide their real feelings that are on the inside. That's what's going on. But the Christian can do this. You and I can do this. We can genuinely rejoice when someone is eclipsing us and they're being raised up. We can rejoice from our low position with them and we can weep with those who are weeping. We can genuinely have that that reality going on through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Spirit do that in us? How does the Spirit deal with self? Because that's what gets in the way. How does the Spirit deal with self? That's the issue we're talking about. Well, he does it first by means of the new birth, right? He does it by means of the new birth first. The new birth in which we are given a new nature. Right? Self is our manifest problem in all of humanity. It's a love for self. It's pride. That is the problem. And salvation is the only thing that deals with the problem of self. Salvation. Nothing else is going to fix that. No moral kind of adjustments in society or anything else are going to teach us as humans to be less selfish. It's not going to happen. Only the new birth. Nothing else works. Pop psychology doesn't work. Behavioral modification through pop psychology doesn't work. The world's religions can't do it. Guess what? Isolation will not do it. Isolation will not do it. Having a good self-esteem will not do it. The only thing that can deal with this problem is salvation in Jesus Christ. And here's how it works. When we are saved, when we believe upon Jesus Christ by faith, when that is granted to us by grace, as the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, when we are saved, not only are we delivered from the power of self, but we are also placed into and identified with a new family. Just look around. Just look around. This is your family. You were given a new self. You were given a new family. We belong the same body. This is so important for us to remember as we wake up in the morning. This is so important for us to have in our mind as we go throughout the day. We are part of this body. And that means that nothing can happen to you, nothing can happen with you that does not have an effect upon others. That means nothing you do Nothing you don't do will not have an effect on those who are part of your family. Let me just show us this principle quickly. Go to Philippians chapter 1 for a moment. We studied it in adult Sunday school. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in reference to the family. Beginning just at the beginning in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to saints. He says that in verse 1. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of what? Your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, Paul says, what you've done has affected me, has affected the ministry. We are together. We are one in the body. I'm praying for you because you are participating in this gospel ministry, and it's effective. I'm confident of this very thing. Verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you. You see that? This visceral connection that Paul has with the Philippians. You participate, I'm participating. It's right for me to have this feeling about you. Why? Because I have you in my heart. Since in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers with grace with me of grace with me. And God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is rejoicing with them, and Paul is weeping with them. He has this connection to him, this familial connection where he realizes and knows and wants them to know we can't do something apart from one another, apart from an effect happening with one another. You can't go and do ministry in your spheres of influence that you have from this church without us being partners with you by prayer and interaction together. And we can't accomplish the ministry of this church without you partnering in that same way with us. Paul says in this, I pray in verse nine, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, discernment, so that you might approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would be as mature as you could ever be in Christ Jesus because I know that's not only going to benefit you, it's going to benefit the whole. All of us are going to be benefited from that. This is what it means. We are part of the same body. That's why Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, in verse 12, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In my imprisonment, in the cause of Christ, it has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everybody else. Listen, what's happened to me, has the word has gone out and there has been a great effect. There has been an effect that's beyond just me. So that what? Most of the brethren... Verse 14, those who trust in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Don't tell me we don't have an effect on one another. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans. The Apostle Paul here in Philippians is emphasizing the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the body of Christ, the doctrine of our partnership that we have with one another, and the effect that each one of us has on one another. That's what he's emphasizing. That's what he's saying. Bringing him joy in his heart. Some, to be sure, he says in verse 13, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife. Others from goodwill, but it really doesn't matter as long as the gospel is being preached. Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. It doesn't really matter. 
They proclaim Christ out of self-ambition rather than for pure motives. Trying to give me trouble, but it doesn't matter. As long as Christ is proclaimed, I what? Rejoice. Notice that in verse 18. In this I rejoice and I will rejoice. He says, not only in this am I rejoicing, but every time in every circumstance, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. This is the idea. Go back to Romans chapter 12 again. Because Paul is emphasizing that same reality, the reality of one body, this this connection, this unifying reality that we are in one body. Notice what he says in verse 4. Just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function. Right? What we do individually affects the whole. Exercising our gifts affects the whole. Not exercising our gifts affects the whole. We have to be exercising our gifts. None of us will do that. None of us will do that if we don't understand the doctrine of God's mercy upon us. None of us will do that if we wake up with the wrong mindset. If it's about me, if it's about myself, it's about what I can get today, then I'm not going to think like that. I'm not going to think about my actions. My actions have no effect on anybody else. I don't understand the mercy of God on me if I live like that. But when I do, when I understand the doctrine of God's mercy upon me, and that's on my mind, I'll refuse to be conformed to the world and its thinking, as Paul says in verse 2. I'll I'll refuse to let the world conform me into its image. Rather, I will ensure that I'm being transformed, he says, by the renewing of my mind. The mind, the very spirit of our minds being shaped by the truth of God's word. That's the idea. Talked about it this morning in Sunday. Go meditate on it. Think about it. Mold this truth over in your mind so that you know what God requires of you and think about the implications of that in your practical living. And in light of that understanding, then you can and will, like Paul, rejoice with those who rejoice. Doesn't matter if you're being eclipsed. Doesn't matter if you're low, they're high, it doesn't matter. You'll just rejoice. Because it's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's under the influence of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, the one who leads us in all truth, as it says in John chapter 16. By means of our new nature, the Spirit empowers us to do what Paul is saying here in verse 15. How? Well, if we understand that nothing can happen to our fellow brothers and sisters without affecting us, and we understand that our actions will affect the whole, then whether it is weeping or rejoicing, we are affected and we can respond rightly. doesn't matter what it is. doesn't matter if it's in the category of weeping or in the category of rejoicing. When we know our life affects everybody else, then we weep or we rejoice. Because it's a matter of the whole. It's a matter of the body of Christ. 
Remember when we were studying through 1 Corinthians? We came to chapter 12. Church was so messed up. The Corinthian church was so messed up in their thinking. Each person was living for self. They just wanted whatever they want. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Oh, you guys are down here. I'm of Christ. You know, it's all this hyper-spiritualism and, and wrong thinking about the law and wrong thinking about their own Christian liberties and wrong thinking about all kinds of stuff in the church. There's all kinds of animosity going on. People suing one another, the, embracing people who are fully and blatantly in sin as if that's what love really looks like. All this stuff is going on. And by the time you get to chapter 12, Paul has laid a a pretty thick foundation concerning the truth that what you do affects the whole. If they don't get anything, they should get that. That your actions have a a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I mean, it's it's clear throughout the entire book. But Paul, by chapter 12, has laid a thick foundation. And in chapter 12, verse 26, he kind of drives the nail clearly home. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Why? Why is that so? Well, notice Paul says in verse 27 why that's so. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You see, there's the point. There's the principle. There's the truth. There's the reality. You cannot think of yourself as someone outside, someone independent of your body, of the body. Because we are one body, because we are Christ's body, then you cannot help yourself when it comes to rejoicing and weeping for others. Becomes your now new natural response. Because what's happening to other believers is also happening to you. It's also happening to you. In other words, their sadness is not isolated. Their honoring is not isolated. It affects the whole, and you are part of it. But listen, we got to have our ecclesiology right. Ecclesiology, big name for the study of the church. We got to have our understanding of the church, an understanding of the body of Christ right. We got to have our thinking right. There are no such thing as isolated Christians. There's no such thing as independent Christians who go and do their own thing wherever they are. That is a misnomer of Scripture. That is a lie of Satan. There is no such thing. We have to understand what the Bible teaches concerning the body. Body is a unit. We are a unit. You cannot think the body is strong if we isolate ourselves from each other. We cannot. 
Isolation, lack of participation, guess, get this, is a surefire way for any of us to cultivate jealousy and anger when others are rejoicing and when others are weeping. You isolate yourself, you, 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 you remove yourself from participation, active participation, not oh, menial, here I am every now and then I show up because the church is a help to me. No, this is active participation and, and usefulness in the church. You don't do that. You're just going to get jealous when somebody else is honored. You're going to get jealous when somebody else angry at somebody else. Because you're not getting it. Listen, if you're uninvolved and uncommitted, even though you're part of the body, you'll easily have a difficult time to weep when others hurt and rejoice when others rejoice. But when we're involved, when we're committed, we won't be able to help ourselves. We won't be able to help ourselves because whatever happens to someone else in the body is happening to me. When someone else is being honored, I'm being honored. When someone else is weeping, hurting, I'm hurting. In fact, notice what the Apostle Paul says over in chapter 14, verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself. Not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You see, this is so much in the Apostle Paul's mind that it comes out everywhere. Every book he writes, it's there. This idea of oneness, this idea of unity, this idea that you affect the whole. It's everywhere. We cannot, if we are true Christians, we cannot live independent. We cannot live isolated lives. One member's esteem, we rejoice with them. It's as if we are being esteemed. Therefore, we rejoice. When they're hurting, we hurt. It's as if we are being hurt just as they are. And that keeps us all from jealousy. It keeps us all from self-expression when we're being, when, when we're not being asked to do something and we thought we should be asked. Or when we are being eclipsed by somebody we think is lesser than us keeps us from jealousy. Because all we care about is God's glory. We don't really care. It's not about us. It's not about self. It's not about my exaltation. It's about the glory of God. And if God wants to bring His glory through somebody else, so be it. It's not about us personally. And why do we become jealous? Self, pride, not having the right mindset, not thinking of ourselves as just instruments in the hands of God. We are living sacrifices. The Apostle Paul knew this well. He lived it. He's, he's shown us 
as he wrote to the Philippians. We looked at 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he says in his other letter to the Corinthian church. Let's listen to his testimony. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 to 29. He says, I've been in labor and hardship. Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, Paul said, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul says, I got all this going on on the outside. I got people chasing me out of towns. I got persecution happening, which Jesus said was going to happen. I got all these external things. Sometimes I get to eat. Sometimes I don't get to eat. Sometimes I have a nice, comfortable place to sleep. Very oftentimes I have no comfortable place to sleep. I've, I've had all this going on. And apart from that, all those external things, as if they're little, On my mind all the time is a concern for all these churches that God has used me to plant. I'm concerned for their growth. I'm concerned for their unity. I'm concerned for them. And he's writing this to one of his church plants in Corinth. Then in verse 29, he says this. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That's the heart that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 12. Paul's saying that's to be your heart. That's to be your feelings. That's to be who you are. This is the principle he's talking about. Nothing can happen within the church. Nothing can happen with the people around you, with us together. Nothing can happen without us genuinely feeling it. We're not feeling it. Or if we find ourselves having jealousy rise up within us right there because somebody else is honored. Or if we have a lack of sympathy when somebody else is hurting, genuinely hurting. And we need to check our own heart before God. That's what we need to do. The problem's not with them. The problem's with us. We need to check ourselves. We need to repent of our sinfulness. We need to go back to the beginning, truly meditate on the truth that is in Christ. Because of Christ, you've been shown mercy. Because of Christ, whatever you have is a gift from God. None of us deserve what we have, so offer yourself to God. Allow Him to use you as He sees fit. Whatever that means in the body, practice that truth. You have that in your mind. If you wake up with that mindset, that's on your heart every day. You're meditating on that. God's going to bring in your life moments where you get to weep and moments when you get to rejoice. And that will affect the body. So Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And you will rejoice with those who rejoice and you will weep with those who weep when you're doing what it says in verse 16. Notice what he says. Be of the same mind toward one another. Oh, return to the thought process. Return to what drives my action. Return to how I think of everybody else. How am I supposed to think of them? Well, not to be haughty in mind. Not to think of myself above anybody else. Associate with the lowly. 
We all know who the lowly are. You know who they are? Anybody who doesn't measure up to me. <laughs> That's how we think. That's how we think. Anybody doesn't measure up to me. That's who the lowly are. Paul says, look, leave that behind. Associate with the lowly. Don't think you're somebody. Don't entertain the thought that you're better than somebody else. I don't know what's going to happen. Somebody's going to say, well, rejoicing has feeling. What does that have to do with verse 16? You just said rejoice has feeling. Yeah, what does that have to do? It has everything to do with it. Why? Because Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you think you're somebody, guess what? Everybody else is a nobody. If you think you're better, if you're prideful in mind, if you acquiesce to those supposedly below you, as the, in the vernacular of the teen years a few years ago, if you think you're all that in a bag of chips, guess what? You'll never practice verse 15. You'll never practice verse 15. In fact, we can say it the other way around and let this be a personal evaluation of your own heart. If you are finding it hard to rejoice with others being honored, if you find it difficult to sympathize and empathize with others who are in low position, then you can be guaranteed that your heart is living as if you are better than everybody else. You can be guaranteed of that. Think about it. Think about what a different place the evangelical church around the globe would be if we all practiced just this one truth. If we all just came in and said, I'm nobody. Listen, I go to pastor's conferences all over, and I see this all the time on display in the opposite way. It's a comparison game. Oh, what's going on in your church? What's happening here? Well, how many people you got? Where are you at? You, me. You're here. I'm glad you're there because you're not like me. Look at all the things I have. I got all this going on. That's what happens. How different the church would be. Listen, the devil is constantly prowling around. He's seeking somebody to devour. He's twisting the truth. Don't allow yourself to be duped. Don't allow it. You've been isolating yourself from the body. Stop isolating yourself. Stop it. If you find that your heart is continually having difficulty when others are praised, when others are honored, stop that. Stop. Repent before God. Repent before God concerning your selfishness. It's in your heart. Submit to the Spirit. Submit to what God is showing you. Submit to what He's commanded of you. Present yourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Conform yourself to the image of Christ. Imitate God, as Paul said to the Colossian believers. Imitate Christ. 
although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Have that attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Regardless of the circumstance, he humbled himself even to the point of death. Be like Christ. Let us be known as those who rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let us be known as that. As the song says, we've sang it in the past, better is how many days in the house of the Lord? One day in the house of God than a thousand years somewhere else. Better is one day. Better is to be the lowest of lows in the house of God than to not be in the house of God at all. Better to never be praised in the house of God than to be praised every day at the applause of men somewhere else. Let that be our heart and our attitude. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you love us. Continue to show us your truth. Thank you for confirming to us that you are our God, that you love us so deeply. You would not allow us to remain selfish, self-absorbed people. Thank you that you would challenge us in reference to whether we are isolating ourselves or not, whether we aren't involved really, whether we're just tacitly attached to what we call a church, whether we are the body of Christ. Everyone is affected by what we do or do not do. Help us remember that. Help us by your spirit offer ourselves each day to your great hand. For we are yours It is reasonable, it is right, it is the very base thing that we ought to be doing. Let that be our heart, that we might rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, considering ourselves to be nobody, considering everybody else to be greater than us. What a privilege it is just to be a part of your family. Use us, Lord, for your glory and grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.